Good morning, Willow Park Church. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Jordan Pilgrim, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so excited that we can, well, be here and, and watching from our living rooms or on our phones or wherever we're at. And I just want to welcome you here today. If you're uh, stumbling upon this feed for the first time, uh, we welcome you here, and we are excited one day to get back to to normal church, the way things were. But for now, we're excited to be here. You know, we're walking through the book of Daniel and uh, Phil's going to be talking today. Pastor Phil's going to be talking about um, one verse and the whole chapter. But verse four says this, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God keeps his covenant of love with us when we keep our covenant of love with him. Actually, he loves us no matter what, but since he loves us, we can enter into a relationship of love and care with him. And he takes care of us and takes care of our needs. James talks about those who draw near to him, he will draw near to them. So let's take this time today to draw near to God and draw in and be in with him. We're excited for, for Easter coming up and, and to experience all um, that we can. And we're going to be having a real celebration of Holy Week coming up. And, and we're going to be doing Palm Sunday service um, online and in the parking lot. And perhaps Bonnie Henry will allow us to meet in person. Um, but we'll see about that. But we're going to be doing that. We're going to be just doing some prayer nights through the week of Holy Week. And then culminating Good Friday and then finally um, Easter Sunday and celebrate our risen Savior. So let's look forward to that and let's be excited about drawing near to God. So with that, let's take some time to worship. Welcome Woolport Church. Nice to see you again this morning or this afternoon or this evening, depending on when you are watching this. Um, I'm Sarah. This is Chris and Jesse and Luke, and we're going to be worshiping with you today. And it's our pleasure and joy to do so. Let me read to you from Colossians chapter 3. This is what God has been reminding me about, especially this morning when I was meditating. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ to a new life, sharing in his resurrection from the dead, keep seeking the things that are above. And that's what I want us to focus on today, is just to put our attention on the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind and keep focused habitually on the things above, the heavenly things, not on the things that are on the earth, which only have temporal value. Because you died to this world and your new real life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's put our attention on God. Let's put our attention on heavenly things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you have encouraged us to remember that our life is not just this life. This life is important, but we have a God who can enable us to live this life well. And I pray that you would help us to remember that you are in control, that you love us, that you are all-powerful and all-knowing, that you are strong in every situation, that nothing is impossible with you, and that because of all of those things that we can keep our attention on you, we can fulfill your plan for us on earth. Let's worship. Your love awakens me.
our attention on you. You wake us up to what is the truth. Lord, thank you that you are worthy of praise. We want to praise you now. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of Kings.
Thank you. 
listen to your word now that you would help us to keep our eyes on things that are above those heavenly things that remind us of who you are and how much we need you and how faithful you are to fulfill all of our needs in your name and for your name's sake amen we're going to take communion now and uh, as we do that as i spoke off the top and as we worship we're drawing closer to him and 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 one of the biggest privileges we have, and we really need to understand this big privilege that we have to be able to come and share in that Last Supper, sharing communion, remembering what our God and Jesus has done for us on the cross. And I want to encourage you just to take some time right now. Let's steady our hearts and ready our hearts before Him. Let's take a moment and confess our sins. Ask God to search our hearts. And we'll take communion. So let's pray. Father, we bring our hearts towards you. We bring our our shortcomings to you and and we make no uh, excuses. We just want to give our lives to you and give our, confess our sins to you. And I just pray that we would be able to move and go into a place of uh, a deeper communion with you, remembering what you did for us on the cross. And thank you so much. I'm going to read quickly from Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor Life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present of the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a promise that is, is that as much as we feel separated and as much as we feel distant, uh, nothing will separate us from the love of God. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've walked into, we can just turn back to him and say, God, I'm here and he'll be there. And nothing will separate us. So that's such a great, great promise. So as we take that, the reason why we can celebrate that is because of the bread and the wine and, and remembering and remember what he's done for us. It says this in 1 Corinthians 4, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and we have given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you so much that we can do this. Be close to and connected to you in something that you did 2,000 years ago. Ate and drank with your disciples, and we do that with you now, remembering what you've done. Thank you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless. Hello, Willow Park Church. My name is Courtney. Thank you for joining us at Church Online. Here is your family news.
This week, we are super excited to welcome back so many of our kids for spring break camp. Please be in prayer this week for the camp, for our kids, and for our leaders, that they have a super fun and safe time as we learn about the armor of God. We are super excited to announce that clubs will be coming to all three of our locations, Rutland, Mission, and Lake Country. This is an amazing opportunity to bring your kids and your kids' friends and neighbors to a fun night of games, songs, crafts, and Bible stories. Learn more and register today at willowparkchurch.com clubs. We are currently looking for two more elders to join the Willow Park Church board. We are still accepting nominations and invite you to prayerfully consider who you think would be a good fit to join the leadership of our church. The deadline for nominations is tomorrow, Monday, March 15th. To learn more and to nominate someone to be considered for eldership, visit willowparkchurch.com elder. Finally, we also want to remind you about our noon prayer gatherings, which happens Monday through Friday at 12 o'clock noon. Join our pastors and other leaders online for a half hour of meeting with God and praying for one another. To find out how to connect, visit our website at willowparkchurch.com prayer. That's all for your family news. Thanks and enjoy your service. Well, good morning, Willow Park Church. It is such a joy again to be here to share the word with you. Uh, it is one year, one year since the lockdown started and we're starting to get some, uh, some, we're hearing that perhaps life might be starting to get back to normal very soon. We're praying that uh, we'll be able to gather in our locations again very quickly, but it has not stopped us getting the word out and the worship and online church and kids ministry and youth ministry and all these other aspects of ministry. We have been on mission all the way through it. Apart Church. Uh, they're even doing drive-in twice today. I'm just really proud to be part of this church. We have an amazing team and thank you for your ongoing generosity to make this happen, that you are giving every week and uh, we're just grateful for that. And so today, one year in, uh, we're looking to the future. We're looking to the next step as to what God is going to do at Willow Park Church. So get ready, keep an eye out on your website, on Facebook, and uh, registration or whatever rules we have to put in place. We're going to do really quickly, and uh, we're excited to see you. We miss you, and we're looking forward to seeing your faces and your smiles. Uh, it's going to be wonderful. Also, today is Happy Mother's Day. Don't, don't panic, dads and husbands. In England, it's okay. It's it's all good. In Great Britain, it is Mother's Day today, so happy Mother's Day to my mum and to all the mums who are listening uh, from Britain. And we have a, a good number of them, and so we're grateful for you. And if you're in Canada and like my mum, you get kind of two Mother's Days. It's 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 lovely. So happy Mother's Day, mum. And uh, and let's turn to the Word. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter eight this morning. And while you get there, uh, we're just a quick recap. It's been an amazing journey so far. We're going all the way through to the end of Daniel. First chapters 1 to 6 is kind of a narrative and a story about Daniel and his friends. And then chapters 7 through to 12 is more prophetic, more apocalyptic. 
and we jumped into it at full force last week. If you did not uh, listen to last week's uh, message, I encourage you to go online and listen to it. We talked about the beast. We talked about Jesus being the cloud rider. We started talking about the Antichrist, the kingdom come. It was a meaty message, and I kind of flew by. It's going to be a little bit more steady and slower today. I think I packed in two sermons into one last week. But thank you for your emails and your encouragement. It means the world to me because right now I'm just looking at a camera. There's three people in the room. And so any kind of uh, any response is gratefully received. Thank you for that. But today we're going to go into chapter eight. And so while you're turning there, I want to introduce you to one of Sarah and my favorite shows uh, from Britain called Grand Designs. Uh, Grand Designs is this really, uh, it's been a long-running uh, show in Britain, and basically you have families or couples um, who decide they want to do a, a house build or they want to renovate something really old. Uh, so for example, this was one recent one. Uh, this was a, this is a kind of a castle. Uh, it was actually built many, many years ago. This is called a fake castle in, in Britain because it's not quite old enough, even though in Canada this would be ancient. Um, this castle was actually built just to house some, uh, some art collection of a very rich stately home owner nearby. But you can see it's had better days. So Grand Designs follows the story of couples and families who decide they're going to renovate these projects. So, but this is what happens. They start at the beginning, and I recommend you. You can see it on YouTube. They start at the beginning, and this, uh, the, the host, who's a very experienced uh, designer, meets with the couple, and they're always bright-eyed and, and excited, and they're like, this is going to be great. And, and he'll ask two questions. And it, both these questions, Sarah and I usually end up yelling at the TV because the questions are this. Uh, how much do you think it's going to cost you? And then they say, well, it's going to cost about £100,000. And Sarah and I are like, no way is that going to cost £100,000 to renovate. It's going to cost, and we actually pause it, and we have a little game, and we say, right, Sarah, how much do you think it's going to cost? And Sarah will be like, £400,000, and I'll say £500,000. And, and, and then you wait to the end, and you find out how much it's going to cost. And then the second question he asks that we yell at as well is, how long do you think it's going to take you? And they always say, oh, like we'll be in by Christmas, three months. And you're looking at it, and you're going, no way are you going to be in by Christmas. I mean, it, things go up quickly in Canada. In Britain, it's always slow. And to give you an example with this one, they found dead bodies because it's a Georgian castle. And immediately work had to stop because the archaeologists came in. And, and, and it was just a disaster. And so they're doing and they, they, they start off with great hopes. But they do get to the end. And look, this is what it looked like at the end. Isn't this beautiful? You can see there the shape of the windows. So you can see it is actually the same place. They did an amazing job. I can't remember exactly, but I think this, this took like two or three years, Sarah. And they were on about four or five months, you know, at one pound fifty pence. And then it ended up costing a million pound or something like that. But here's my point. They've got a great plan and the plan is perfect, and they've got a good architect, and, and all that, and that's great, but what tends to happen is the ones that end up being really expensive or really long are when the people themselves decide to project manage it. That they don't bring somebody in to project manage. They think, oh, we'll do it ourselves. I've never done it before, but it can't be that hard. And so they start off, and it goes disastrous. 
Here's the reality. This really is like our post-Christian culture. Is we have this idea that we're in perfect control, that we are the project managers, and nothing is going to go wrong in life. And then suddenly, something goes wrong and takes our plans so far off where we thought it would be, COVID, for example, that we're left wondering, scratching our head, whether we should have even embarked on this in the first place. What on earth is going on? I thought I had everything I needed and everything it took because I'm so powerful and important, which is what our post-Christian culture communicates to us. And then when something does go wrong, we're left flailing because now we don't know what to reach for because we've been communicated and told that we have everything we need. But then when life reminds us that, that actually things are outside of our control, we, we flounder, we struggle. Our culture's idea of individualism, which is so paramount, the God of freedom, is actually insufficient when it comes to great difficulties. But as Christians, as, as God Jesus followers, we have a great architect. We have an amazing project manager who is in complete control. He can see the end from the beginning. He knows his story and he will win. You see, the Bible puts this in scriptural language and it sounds like this. He will work all things according to the counsel of his will. He is the ultimate architect. And so the good news is, no matter how bad it gets or how out of control it seems, God wins in the end. And that is the paramount mega story over Daniel, that God is in control, that God places rulers and authorities into place. He is in control. And even though it looks difficult and looks challenging and even causes us to despair at times, Christians, Jesus followers, we can take hope in the belief and and in the truth that God wins. He is in control. And so chapter 8 really resonates that truth again. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to spend about 10 minutes, 15 minutes tops, going through the first part of this passage pretty quickly. It's basically a historical story. And then I'm going to show you how it applies to us in our post-Christian culture, and especially as Christians, how do we respond in this post-Christian culture? Because again, that is the mega theme in the Bible, in Daniel, that God is in control, even though this culture seems to be against us and is in many ways against us, how do we react? So let's jump in. Verse 1 of chapter 8, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that I'd already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns. Okay, so now we're getting into the, okay, the apocalyptic, sometimes sounds strange and bizarre language, but just hold on. Standing beside the canal, and the, cor- the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. So what does this mean? What is this ram? Well, thankfully, in Daniel 8, you actually get the answer a little bit later in verse 20. The two-horned ram uh, that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So we know, therefore, the ram of the first part of this chapter is representative of Media and Persia. 
Okay, verse 5, let's keep going. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. So we've got, we've got Media and Persia who uh, followed Babylon. We know from previous history and, and prophecies that Babylon got conquered by Media and Persia. Now, who is represented the ram, and by the way, the ram was a well-known image that Persia used on its battlements and on its, uh, on its flags. And so now we have this goat that's coming in full force. Look at the speed it's communicating without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram, Persia, I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it, the goat, attack the ram furiously. Look at these, look at these words that are used to describe the ferocity of this goat attacking the ram. As I was thinking about it, sorry, the attack of the ram furiously, striking the ram, shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to its ground and trampled on it. None could rescue the ram from its power. So this, this, this uh, goat had, I mean, this is full-on temper tantrum. I don't know if you've ever been butted by a goat. I have. I've been butted by a sheep as well. That's not pleasant either. I used to work at a place called Living Waters, and they had goats, and they had sheep. And one particular sheep used to, and I'm no word of a lie, used to hide and wait, because it saw me coming into the paddock, and it would hide behind a corner. I'm not joking here. And as you walk past, you just hear this behind you before it smacked you really, really hard. It's sore. So imagine this goat going after this ram and destroying it. What is this goat? What is this goat? Well, we see it in verse 21. It says in verse 21, Got a coffee up as I get through this. Such a good passage. Verse 21, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece. So we've got Persia, we've got Greece. And we know from previous passages that Greece is uh, shown and represented by very fast and ferocious animals. So what is this Greece king? What is this Greek king that we're reading about? History shows us. Now, let's just talk about Daniel and his place in history just for a quick second. Historians that have sought to discredit the Bible say that Daniel is so accurate to history, there is no way that it could have been written afterwards. And yet we know from historical data that Daniel was written exactly when it was, hundreds of years before this actually happened. And so the detail in Daniel 7 and 8 is so amazing that that historians are scrambling to try and make it that it was written after, and yet really the evidence towards that is nothing compared to the evidence that shows that Daniel was written hundreds of years before this event. So who is this Greek king? Well, it was Alexander the Great. This is an actual mosaic, just, uh, just a couple uh, hundred years or so uh, after Christ. This is Alexander the Great. 200 years after Daniel, this event happened. He is the king of Macedon's son. He was raised as a warrior king. And then his parents were assassinated and he became king. And by 32, 33 years old, his uh, extreme ability to be an amazing leader led him to conquer most of the known world by the time he was 32. History tells us that after that happened, he sat down and wept because there was nothing else 
to conquer. This was the ultimate army, the Greek army, smashing into Persia and destroying Persia. So we have Babylon destroyed by Persia. Then we have Persia destroyed by Greece. It says in verse 8, the goat became very great, but at its height of its power, the large horn was broken off. In other words, he died. Alexander died very, very young. And in its place, four prominent horns. Alexander didn't have any children. What he had was four prominent generals. Uh, He grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Now, Greece, we can look to Greece as being really the, the founders of a lot of the education and the common language that the world in enjoyed all the way up to the Roman Empire. Much of the New Testament is written in Greek. And then Alexander died, possibly, uh, let's go back, possibly uh, he was poisoned, we don't know, but he had no heir. This is an amazing prophecy. It's an amazing prophecy before these events actually happened about Alexander. Verse 9, out of one of them came another horn. Out of one of who? One of the four generals which started small but grew in power. Now, now for those of you who listened last week, that should remind you of what was said about the little horn. This is different. This is a different little horn. This is a type of Antichrist, not the Antichrist that chapter 7 refers to, but still called a horn. Came but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. Until the host of the heavens. And it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. So now you're getting a bit of a transference of language from the actual prophecy and history that we know to be true. But also now we're starting to see how this is a picture of more divine. It's a metaphor of what we can look forward to in the future. So who was this Horn. Who was this general? Well, again, we can see from history that it was very specific. This is Antiochus IV, this dude. This isn't an actual piece of art, as you can tell, probably done on an iPad. But this man truly was a type of Antichrist. The way that he viewed himself was quite remarkable, so much so that he gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which literally means God manifests. So if he'd had a business card, he would have said, it would have said, Anthony, God manifest. Anthony, I am God. The Jews at the time actually coined a phrase to make fun of him that actually I think is closer to the type of character he was, which was Antioch Apipamons, which means madman. This man truly was a madman when it came to the Jews. He made it his sole ambition to destroy the Jews, the people of God, because he hated them so much. Look what the scripture says. It set itself, this is Antiochus, up to be great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. So history shows there were four generals. One general in particular, the scripture says, hundreds of years before it actually happened, rose to prominence and attacked the Jews that he actually wanted to throw down the sanctuary. When did this happen in history? Well, it happened in 168 BC because what Antiochus did is he devastated Jerusalem. It is what the scripture says, the first, as Jesus called it, abomination of desolation. 
It's the first time that the temple was destroyed. It happened again in 70 AD, and we believe as Christians it will happen again in the future, whatever that metaphor of the temple might be, even if that temple is the people of God, that there would be oppression, there would be a devastation. And so he, Antiochus, murdered tens of thousands of Jewish people. He defiled the temple in despicable ways. He offered a pig onto the altar that you know is absolutely not kosher when it comes to uh, the people of God. Not only that, but an abomination when it comes to what you place on the altar of God that had such specific instructions around it. He erected a shrine to Jupiter and prohibited temple worship. He made circumcision illegal, death penalty attached to it. He sold more than 40,000 Jews into slavery. He destroyed all copies of the Torah that he could find. And then if he found anybody in possession of the Torah, they would be slaughtered. He tortured Jews to get them to renounce their faith. This man, Antiochus IV, truly was a type of Antichrist. Verse 12, because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It, the horn, Antiochus, prospered in everything it did, and the truth was thrown to the ground. This man could do no wrong. This man prospered. This man, Antiochus, grew very, very rich. He had huge amounts of favor and power. And he destroyed as much as he could the people of God and their belief and their truth in every way that he could. As a side thought, it is interesting as you read the scripture and you look at our culture and our history that it seems that the wicked do flourish. Well, let me remind you of what I said right at the beginning of the message, that God wins. That what we see as flourishing, what we see as prospering in our world often has to do with power and influence and money. Whereas that is not prospering and flourishing in God's eyes, in the kingdom of Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite. See, flourishing is actually having a relationship with God in such a way that you're in alignment with the grand architect and you are prospering regardless of the circumstances. You are prospering in soul, in life, mentally, that no matter what happens around you, that is true prospering. So please don't scratch your head and wonder why has God allowed the wicked, it seems, in our world to prosper so much. He will win. He has a plan. He has a story, not just for countries, but for your life and my life. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, the holy one being an angel this time, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that caused desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. That's Daniel asking the question. And he, the angel, said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconstructed. So, this scripture has caused much angst in Christianity and Christendom because many times over through history, this scripture has been used to try and detail when the specific date that Jesus will come back and restore the temple. So much so that specific dates have actually been declared in our Christian history. This day, Jesus will return, and yet he has not. It has actually caused so much problem, so much challenge, so much discredit in Christianity. We need to resist 
The idea that we can predict these, fancy, these, these prophetic visions in fanciful ways that will result in specific days and tragic interpretation. We need to be very, very careful. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from Uli calling Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So here's what's beautiful about when I stand and I speak and I preach. We can tackle passages that ordinarily would be difficult We can tackle passages that on many levels, and we're going to see this again in just a second, are confusing and and what would be looked upon as, as challenging. And that's okay because as Christians, we can rely on the Holy Spirit's help to help us interpret His Word and His Bible in ways that actually result in life changing us today. And in the same way that he has had divine interpretation then as to the vision that he received, we can expect with hopeful hearts a divine interpretation through the Holy Spirit living in us to describe what is going on in the scripture, whatever that scripture might be that we're reading. And so as a speaker, I can be confident that if I do my very best to communicate the truth unapologetically, it is not up to me to convince you of the of the word it's not up to me to convince you and and explain it in so much simple detail complete with flannel graph and everything that it's not up to me to land it in your hearts and spirits it's up to God all I need to do is be faithful to the word and communicate it enthusiastically and hopefully fairly interestingly that you will receive it and dwell on it and enjoy the fact that God will bring fruit in your life and it was the same then as it is now, as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified. Again, really? What a shock. And fell prostrate. Son of man, he told me. And again, you will think of this as being from the last chapter. This is a different interpretation. It's literally talking to a human rather than to Jesus. Understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep. With my face to the ground, then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. So here's what's happening in Daniel. We're getting a, we're getting a, a story of what's happening in his present in Babylon. We're getting a picture of what is going to happen in his immediate few hundred years uh, history in the future. And also, it's our future. So now the, the, uh, the angel is putting his attention on, here's what's happening in your immediate history, but here's what's going to happen at the end of time. So this is where we lean in, because this exactly has everything to do with the time that we're living in. And so much of what Daniel saw has been fulfilled. But much of it is yet to come. And that's where we have to be careful in being specific about the times and the seasons. We are instructed to look at the scripture and to listen to what the Lord is saying to us and be aware. Be very aware that we're in end times. But we mustn't tip over into being specific about, well, it's going to be the 22nd of October uh, uh, 2023. Because I've done some math, I've done some math. I was pretty good at math. I got a C in grade ten, and so you know, I think I can predict the return of Jesus. I'm being facetious to prove my point. 
Because we have to be very careful. What we must do is read Scripture and accept that this is going to happen. We just don't know when. So while he was still speaking, uh, sorry, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Medea and Persia. We know that. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. We've already talked about that. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. That's, that's Greece. We know that. And so much of what Daniel has seen has fulfilled. But then... In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king. So now he's talking about Archiochus and also what is to come. A master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. So now he is putting our attention on the Antichrist. The Antichrist that will ultimately be destroyed by Jesus and the kingdom come. And we talked a lot about this last week. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed. By who? By Jesus, the cloud rider, the son of man returning again. He was destroyed on the cross and he will be destroyed again in the future, but not by human power. So now, now we're getting into how does this apply to you and me? How does this apply to us as parents? How does this apply to us as employers? How does this apply to us in our relationships? Yet he will be destroyed. Who? The Antichrist. Everything that represents evil. God will win in the end. God will win in the moment. He will win in the present. He will win in the future. He will win in in the ultimate future. He will win. And we must not get distracted by the despair of what might be going on in our lives, by what might be happening in our community, in our country. We must not allow it to distract us from the truth that ultimately good will win, that Jesus will destroy evil. How will it be destroyed, though? How will Jesus do this? You see, it's not by human power. We know that. We can see evidence of that in our culture. As we look at the things that are evidently wrong and are wrong in our culture, we might point fingers of blame to the politics or to the rich or to the poor or to all these different elements that are going on. We blame millennials and the millennials blame the Gen Xers and the boomers and there's just finger pointing going on. But the scripture tells us that actually the truth, the bringing back to the way that things should be is not going to come by human power. So here's what's one of the challenges about believing some of the things that the post-Christian culture will communicate about how there is no God and there is no absolute truth and we must not judge that freedom is the God. Because deep inside of every human, as the scripture says it, is there's there's an echo of God. Ecclesiastes 3 says that we all have this awareness of the divine. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He says we have this awareness because we've been created in his image. If that wasn't the truth, how do we know that what we're experiencing now is not good? I'll give you an example. Let's say I say to you, out of a range of 1 to 10, what 
what would you give your current level of fitness? Your current level of fitness. Some of you are going to be like, I give myself an eight as your abs ripple in the sunlight. Others of you are going, COVID has been brutal. I'm going to give myself a two. Okay, so let's, so for those of you who are two, I'm with you. That's all right. No judgment. That's, that's, that's fine. You know, we, we, there's summer is coming. There's time. You can get yourself on a 90-day program, 75-day hard, 57-and-a-half-day kind of hard, whatever it is. You can get yourself on a program. For those of you who are 8 out of 10, I do have a little bit of judgment, but only because it's rooted in jealousy. It doesn't matter. If you're 8 out of 10 or 2 out of 10, in order for you to give yourself a grade, you must have an idea in your mind what a 10 looks like. Otherwise, how do you know you're a 2? You have an idea of what a 10 looks like, otherwise how do you know you're an 8? In the same way, humanity strives towards their being good in the world because we know there's something better. How do we know there's something better? Because inside each one of us, we have a fingerprint of God. We've been designed for something better. And so how is that going to come? Is it going to come through politics? Our society proves that's not true. Is it going to come through social justice? No, because the heart of mankind, of humankind, is always going to lean towards selfishness. Is it going to come through the rich being poorer and the poorer being richer? No, because again, we know that the heart of humanity always leans towards being selfish. It's a heart issue. Not a practical issue. It's a heart issue. What is racism rooted in? It's a heart issue. What is sexism rooted in? It's a heart issue. It's not a practical issue. It's a heart issue. And so it doesn't matter how practical. There's nothing wrong with being practical in protests and everything else. But the second that replaces and you believe that is the answer, then we get blinded and deluded because the reality is that the enemy of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers because the true answer is actually found in the gospel. That which the scripture is pointing to. How is evil going to be destroyed in this world? Ultimately through the gospel. That it can be destroyed now in our present and it will be destroyed in the future through the gospel. Through the fact, the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sin. And by doing so, that sin, that selfish heart is changed. And you get enough people with changed hearts, then you start seeing communities and cities and neighborhoods and families changed. But you see, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so much so that we actually believe it's in our control and in our power, and it's just not true. In Colossians 2, a beautiful scripture as we lead towards Easter, the record of debt that stood against us, he set aside. Who's he? Jesus, God set aside, nailing it to the cross in Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. Who are the rulers and authorities? The evil rulers, the evil authorities, the antichrists, in other words, by triumphing over them in him, Jesus. There is victory over evil in Jesus that can be experienced by you today. That as we focus on the gospel and we pray through the gospel and we have the gospel come part of our lives as we celebrate Jesus, not just at Easter, but each day of our lives, Christian friends, as we focus on this, then the victory and the power will overcome that which is around us, even just by us influencing it. You see, Satan's ultimate weapon 
is sin. And accusing us before God as sinners. But we have an answer to that. And his name is Jesus. You see, as Daniel continues in chapter 8, the vision of the evening and morning that have been given to you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. You see, Jesus Christ will be victorious in your life now, and he will be victorious in the future, and ultimately victorious when he returns back. It's like when you read Daniel chapter 8, it's a bit like those times. You remember when we used to go to movie theaters before hand sanitizer wasn't a thing? And we could sit there and enjoy it. And one of the most favorite parts of the movie, and sometimes you know it's coming because it's a really big movie, is the trailer. And the trailer comes on with the, you know, it used to be in the 80s and 90s, it was always that guy with a really deep voice, you know. And I can't even do it. My dad would do it really well. But that, that really deep voice trailer would come on. It's like Daniel 8 and the Antiochus and the Antichrist that he represents, that he is the small Antichrist. It's like the trailer for things to come. See, history tells us that Daniel's prophecy is true. It will come out. But it's just a preview. There will be a final movie, if you like. Jesus will return. He will achieve power over the him, the Antichrist, that has been seeking to achieve power and amassing wealth. And in the same way, in the end times, that Antiochus amassed wealth and power and influence and destroyed and persecuted God's people and exalted himself, there will be an ultimate Antichrist. And again, we need to be careful as we predict who the ultimate Antichrist is. There have been many Antichrists through history, whether it be Chairman Mao or Hitler or Stalin or Lenin or, or Lenin, Lenin, not, not John Lennon, um, Herod and, and Judas. These, these world leaders, these leaders in culture who were Antichrists, had the spirit of Antichrist, but we need to be careful in predicting. Once again, what we know is Jesus will return, and we know it will be soon. And then as I come to an end, look at what Daniel's response was to this horrific vision. I, Daniel, was worn out. So before we continue, as Christians in a post-Christian world, how do we respond? We know Jesus was victorious. We know that the end times are coming. We know that the kingdom of the world seems to be getting more evil. We know that there doesn't seem to be an answer in the practical things we're doing. And we know that at some point in the future, Jesus will return and he will have ultimate victory over the evil one. And we will live with him on a new earth and a new heaven forever and ever. We know all that to be true. But what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us as parents, as brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and employers and employees as we go about our day-to-day as Christians? What does it mean for you and me? Give me practical, Glenn. Well, let's see what Daniel did. Daniel was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days, and who can blame him? What he saw was dramatic and frightful. Then, look at this, I got up and went about the king's business. I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. He's not disregarding it. It was beyond understanding, he says. But I got on with my job. I got on with my job. You see, Daniel had a glimpse of the future. And how did he respond? He got on with what he was called to do. So if we rewind right back to Daniel 1, we have choices. 
We can hunker down, we can hide, we can put that metaphorical crash helmet over our kids' lives. We can, we can absorb into the Christian subculture and go into the metaphorical caves as hermits and hope that we never come into contact with anything in the world. But that wasn't Daniel's response. Daniel's response was he got on with his calling. His calling was actually, he was an administrator in the government that for much of the time was anti-God. You see, Daniel got on with his calling. He got on with what he was called to do. He lived like it was going to happen, but he got on with his calling. It feels to me that as I read Daniel chapter 8, that this statement here is where it all comes to. That yes, we have a vision for the future. Yes, it's going bad right now. Yes, God is in control. What do I do? And it kind of culminates in this one verse. He got on with his job. He got on with his calling. I want to say what I'm about to say with love and care, but with truth. And it is actually the most caring thing I can say, the most loving thing I can say. In fact, it would be the most uncaring, unloving thing for me not to say this because I know it's to be true and I know that you and I know it's true. And it's this. There is a real danger that the benefits of the cross become our focus while we ignore its primary call on our lives. In other words, our Christian culture has gotten comfortable with the idea of all that the cross brings us. That all the, all the nice things, all the wonderful benefits that we can approach him and pray and ask for peace and forgiveness and joy. And we, we reach out to him in order to receive the benefits of the cross. And there is nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes our focus, then we can lose sight of the fact that the same cross that brings us those benefits is also calling us to a day job. It's calling us to a higher thing. It's calling us to something important in our culture. And it is not to withdraw and just enjoy the benefits. It's to step forward, armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very thing that will actually see change in our community. It's not the social justice. It's not all those areas that we can get distracted with. Nothing wrong with them. But if they become the primary thing, then we have lost sight of what it actually is that the cross has called us to which is to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, to be representatives of the gospel, to go into the world, to open our mouths and to share, to actually think and pray about who it is that we should be reaching out to and then realizing in the light of the truth that Jesus is going to return and regardless of our stage of life, you can be in your 80s and 90s or you can be a child in or in your teens and everything in between. No matter how busy we are, our busyness can destroy us from the actual reality that the reason that you and I woke up this morning as Jesus followers is so that we could represent him well and point people to him. Everything else is just gravy. Everything else has been given to us to enable us to that end to get on with our day jobs. What's your day job? Christian friend, your day job, your calling is not to be the, the, uh, the office worker or the carpenter or the doctor or the nurse or whatever beautiful, wonderful thing, an important thing that you are doing. That is not your ultimate calling. Your ultimate calling is to see that you have been called to represent Jesus and be his ambassador. Through that, your business has been given to you as a tool to point Jesus to him. 
to point people to Jesus. That is your ultimate calling. And if we wake up in the morning and we lose sight of that, then we have lost sight of everything. We have forgotten that he is returning. We have forgotten that there are people around us who don't know him that will ultimately spend eternity in hell as a result of that. That we have been called to get on with our day jobs, just like Daniel, in the light of this vision. So in a few weeks' time, we have what is now seen as revival-level tool in the hands of God, the Alpha Course. We are starting the Alpha Course on April the 13th, and we are going to be doing it online, and we're believing that God is going to do amazing things. I wrote this week uh, to the Church South family, and I shared a statistic I heard a couple of years ago. It might be different now, but seven out of ten people who come to know Jesus in Canada do so through someone inviting them to go on the Alpha Course. We have this amazing, modern, well put together, something that as Christians we can stand on and be proud of, this incredible presentation of the gospel. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. We will find it difficult to invite people to that because sometimes we get too busy being focused on the benefits rather than on our day job. We were too busy on our other parts of our life. And I speak to this because I have brought myself to this point in this week. And I have confessed and asked for forgiveness from God, knowing that there is so much distraction working in the kingdom of God that I actually can lose sight of the kingdom of God. And so I'm asking you as a, as a South regular, if you are watching this, to join us on the Alpha Course. Yeah, but Glenn, I'm a Christian. Doesn't matter. Join us. As I said in my email, when you, when you uh, recommend a great movie to somebody, it, it, it's, it's, it's far more powerful if you've seen it yourself. Oh, you should go and see that movie. I've not seen it. I haven't got the time. But you should go and see it. It'd be really good for you. Whereas if I see the movie and I go, let's go to the movies together, then that is far more powerful. And so I, I'm, I'm calling out to the South people. Let's make it our job over the next few weeks to put things aside so that we can make the Alpha Course priority. So is the gospel the Alpha Course? No. But it is a wonderful declaration of what we believe to be the gospel. So at the very least, join us as we do Alpha. Sign up. You go to tryalpha.me. You're going to see this webpage become, uh, going to fill out. So I'm going to be giving you a bit of a preview. Louisa might tell me off later for doing this. But um, sign up there just for information. And then start praying about who it is that you're going to invite. And pray. And don't not go if they decide not to go. You enjoy it anyway. But this is our day job. This is our job in the light of all that we've read in chapter 8, that God is in control, that the gospel will be victorious, that Jesus is going to return and destroy evil forever. And we have a job to do as ministers of reconciliation. And what a brilliant opportunity we have to join in with this amazing movement called Alpha. And if you've been a Christian a long time, great Come and be a table leader. Come and join in. Come and brush up on the gospel, if you like. And at the very least, it would be lovely to see you. It would be lovely to connect with you as we move towards gathering again. Join us. Join us. Daniel chapter 8 is a magnificent chapter, but it is a clarion call to be those, those people that God has called us to be. 
which is his people, his representatives, his ambassadors. And so I hope you hear that through this chapter and throughout this week as God wonderfully and beautifully and patiently calls us to the ultimate calling, which is Jesus and his gospel. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, I just... This scripture is so amazing. It's amazing the way that this chapter points to actual history. And yet, Lord, it just gives us once again a call to action today because we know the ultimate history is you, Jesus, returning in victory. And so, Lord, I pray that today as we consider and think about Easter as it's coming up, that we would be reminded of the beauty of the gospel, the victory that the cross has brought to us. And thank you for the many benefits that it brings. But, Lord, I pray you would stir your people. Fill us with your spirit. Revive us, Lord, if we need that. Lord, I pray that you would put people on our hearts that we could invite to Alpha. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that hundreds of people will be affected and changed as a result of Willow Park Church running Alpha in April. Lord, I pray there will be a movement in the hearts and the spirits of many. But Lord, start with us. Lord, and so I'm so thankful for this church community. Lord, we love them. I love them miss them. But Lord, I pray that you would continue to draw them to yourself in beautiful ways. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Pray about Alpha. Try alpha.me is the website you want to go to. Just have a little look. I could say it's going to get more impressive, I promise. You're going to start seeing adverts around the city on Castanet, in bus stops, on Facebook, pointing people to tryalpha.me. We got QR codes and like I had somebody explain to me how that works. It's brilliant. It's going to be a wonderful month-long campaign in our city to draw people to Jesus through Alpha. Join us. Join us. Have an amazing week. Uh, like I say, Sarah and I and the family, we miss you and we're looking forward to seeing you very soon. God bless.